45 years ago, and when I said that, some of you younger folks are saying to yourselves, well, I don't remember that, and you don't. You weren't watching the not large screen TV back then, but a much smaller screen. We were living in uh, Hearst, going to First Baptist Bedford. I was in seminary. And the images on that small screen TV are still indelibly burned on my mind. I can see them today. 45 years ago, yesterday, November the 18th, we began to see images from South America, from Guyana, a leader by the name of James Warren Jones, a cult leader that we know by the name of Jim Jones, had led his Pentecostal group to uh, exile in South America because they were under threat here in America. And when they began to be investigated because of uh, charges of violation of human rights in their own community, and Representative Leo Ryan, a Democrat from California, went to investigate, Jones had him assassinated. And knowing that there would be retribution from the U.S. government, then he ordered his followers then to drink the Flavor-Aid, not the Kool-Aid. Laced with cyanide, he ordered them then to commit what he called revolutionary suicide as a statement against the United States government. 909 people lost their lives. Some of them did not volunteer to do so. They were injected with cyanide. 304 of them were children. And I can still see in my mind the bodies laid out in an orderly fashion around the central part of that encampment. Some of you remember that. It was the largest loss of American life in a single intentional incident until September the 11th, 2001. Fast forward another 15 years. Some of you may remember this. 30 years ago in April, a man by the name of Vernon Wayne Howell, also a cult leader, led a group of people called Branch Davidians, which was an extreme cultic group that had separated from Seventh-day Adventists at Mount Carmel uh, encampment outside of Waco. You don't know him as Vernon Wayne Howell. You know him as what? David Koresh. Because he legally had changed his name to David because he saw himself as being the new Messiah, David, eternal king, and Koresh because that is the Hebrew name for Cyrus seeing himself as the king that was going to liberate his people and bring in the kingdom of God. And when there were accusations, once again, of violation of human rights, of child abuse and polygamy, then there was a federal raid in February of 1993, during which a firefight, some of the ATF agents were killed, four of them and seven Branch Davidians. A 51-day siege then ensued, and it ended then with a firestorm that killed 71 Davidians, 21 of them children. This came an ins- became an inspiration two years later for Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, who then, citing the incident at Waco as an example of oppression by the United States government, then in a re- what they called a revolutionary act, bombed the Murrow Building in Oklahoma City and killed over 168 people. Two incidents of what we clearly know today as false prophets. So we say, well, that's in the past. Those are aberrations. I believe they're false prophets all around us. 
Maybe not to the great, the same magnitude, maybe not to the same degree, but they're there. And Jesus warns us about them, and he gives good reason in the New Testament for the warning. You know, in the Old Testament, you knew, we know from Deuteronomy what a, what a prophet is. It's a person who then tells forth the message of God, the will of God, his commands and his expectations. So, basically a preacher, but also one often who predicts predicts what will happen, what God is going to cause to happen or maybe allow to happen, but it's not always predictive. But we have some tests in the Old Testament to determine when a person is a false prophet or not. The best known one, of course, is found from Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter. It is a certain test that when a person doesn't pass it, you know that they're not a true prophet. And of course that is, if a prophet predicts, that's one of his, his functions, predicts something that will come, come true, and it doesn't, it doesn't happen, then we know that that person is a false prophet. The, the problem with that being our only test is it's not absolutely certain. Oh, it's certain if they lie and it doesn't come true. But sometimes people predict things and they what? They do come true. And yet they're still false prophets. You know the old expression, a blind hog can find an acorn every once in a while. So you know sometimes people can predict things and they do come true. So there's another test in Deuteronomy, which is found in the 13th chapter, and that is if someone speaks a prophetic sign or they perform a miracle, you may think they're a prophet, but if it leads to idolatry, you know that that person is a false prophet. So it's not just what a person says, but it's what a person does in leading. But that's not the complete test. You put these two together, and a little bit later in Deuteronomy, the third chapter, in verses, 13th chapter, in verses 4 and 5, we give, really, he, Moses gives us the definition of what a false prophet is. It's anyone who rebels against God and leads God's people to disobey any of his commandments. That person is a false prophet because we are exhorted in Deuteronomy to listen to God to serve God, to cling to Him, and to follow His commandments. And anyone who leads us astray not to do so by word or deed is a false prophet. You know, the two prophets in the Old Testament decried false prophets and described what they were like. Isaiah talks about false prophets being the tail and not the honorable head who lead people astray so that they're swallowed up by confusion. Jeremiah in several places talks about false prophets as those that lie and don't just lie and tell falsehoods, but they do it in the name of God, saying that God has sent them and they fill people with false hope. And they say, there's peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah, of course, is prophesying against the background of the Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel described these false prophets as those that encourage the wicked and oppress the righteous. They are like roaring lions who devour their prey, and they rob the poor. Micah, once again, says they cry peace. And at the same time, while they speak about peace, they declare holy war on those that will not fill their mouths, that will not satisfy their needs. Zephaniah describes these false prophets as reckless, treacherous men. Those that support rulers who are like roaring lions and howling wolves. And there's several examples in the Old Testament. The first one that I, I can identify after the Exodus is Korah, the Levite, with 250 co-conspirators who rebelled. 
They rebelled against Moses and Aaron, but they were really rebelling against the Lord. And we know what happened to them. The earth swallowed up Korah and his family, and the 250 followers were consumed with fire. King Ahab had false prophets. You might say that they were the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, 850 of them. Those aren't, we know they're not true prophets, but in that day and time, they were sanctioned by the king and people followed them as a part of their religion. They were, of course, defeated by Elijah at Mount Carmel. Under Ahab, Zedekiah and 400 prophets wrongly predicted to Ahab that he would win if he went into battle against the Arameans, against the Syrians, and we know what happened. Ahab was killed. Hananiah and Jeremiah falsely predicted that the Babylonian captivity would come to an end in two years, and he took a wooden oak, and he broke that oak, and he said, you see, this is a prediction that the yoke upon the Jewish people will be broken, and God had other plans. God said, you have broken the yoke of wood, but the yoke of iron will be on these people until I let them go. You see, he preached peace and safety. He counseled rebellion against the Lord, and Jeremiah prophesied his death, and two months later he was struck down. And then there's Ahab, not the king, but the prophet. Ahab the prophet and another prophet, Zedekiah, in the time of Jeremiah, who gave false hope to the exiles. What ended? How did they end? King Nebuchadnezzar threw them into the fire, and they were consumed. There's Shemaiah and Noadiah, the prophetess, and Nehemiah. They conspired with those that opposed the building of the wall in Jerusalem. They were hired by non-Jewish opponents to trap Nehemiah and the temple, and he would not take the bait. You see, there were many false prophets in the Old Testament. There were many false Christs in, Je- in Jesus' day walking around saying that they were the Messiah that had come to deliver God's people. One of those was the Galilean by the name of Judas who opposed the taxation about the time of Jesus' birth. He even had a forerunner like John the Baptist, a false prophet by the name of Zadok. What happened to them? Well, Judas was killed. His sons were crucified on crosses and his followers were scattered, but that wasn't the end of it. Zadok then was responsible for forming a group of people that later became zealots and opposed the Romans. Jesus a little bit later than the text that we're talking about here today, during his Passion Week, talked about all of these. He said, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name. Many will follow me, and they'll come in my name, and they'll say, I am the Christos, I am the Messiah, I am the Deliverer, and they will mislead many. The text that we have today, one of the imperatives of Jesus then, warns us today, even today, of this very kind of danger. Matthew, the seventh chapter, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after he has expressed the golden rule, after he has talked about taking the narrow way and not the broad way, in verses 15 through 20, he says this, Beware of false prophets. You see, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. You see, people don't pick grapes from thorn bushes. They don't pick figs from thistles. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. You see, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And just like John the Baptist, then he said, you see, 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you see, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Of course, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's after Jesus has talked about two ways. There's the broad way that leads to destruction with a wide gate, and then there's the narrow way, and few find it. These false prophets are those that lead people along the popular broad way. And he then is about to to talk about uh, sending them out into Galilee, three chapters later in Matthew 10. And remember what he warned them about in Matthew 10. He said, I'm sending you out. You are like sheep, and you're going out amongst what? Do you remember what he said? I'm sending you out amongst wolves. So you have the analogy there. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. There's a parallel text to this morning's Matthew 7, and it's found in Luke, the sixth chapter. And there, Luke has some of the sayings from the Sermon on the Mount that he's collected there, and he does talk about the fruit the bad, that is the fruit of the bad tree and the fruit of the good tree. He uses the grape and fig analogy, but then he goes on and he adds another analogy in Luke, the sixth chapter, verse 45. You see, the good man, the good tree, the one who produces good fruit, brings out of the good treasure of his heart, bring, he brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And here's what is important. He says, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart, the treasure. There are similar passages elsewhere in the New Testament. John the Baptist, as I alluded to it a moment ago, before Jesus comes on the scene, he is baptizing And he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming, and he calls them a brood of vipers. And then what does he say to them? He says, produce fruit that is representative in keeping with righteousness. Don't say to yourself that you are children of Abraham. God can raise up stones and make them into children like Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire, he says, just as Jesus later said. When you come to James, Jesus' brother, later in the New Testament, in his letter, he uses a similar kind of analogy. He says, he exhorts us then to speak purely and to speak good things and not bad things and not be duplicitous. And then he says this, can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives or a vine produce figs? So why did Jesus talk about false, false prophets and what is this about? Well, first of all, he uses two analogies, doesn't he? What are the analogies here? One is they are like wolves that come into the sheepfold. And the other is they're bad trees with bad fruit. Jesus urgently uh, warns us about the wolves. The danger even today is a real threat to his disciples, to his flock. But the threat isn't what we typically think it is, I think, here. You know, we think of wolves, ferocious, ravenous wolves, as doing what? Coming in and devouring the sheep. But if we look at the language, it's worse than that. He talks about false prophets, and the word there begins with pseudo, and that means to lie. These are prophets who lie, they deceive, and they're ravenous wolves. And the word there doesn't really mean so much those that eat and devour, it is those who rob and extort the people. So the summary here is Jesus is warning the flock about those that are going to come and lie amongst them and deceive them so that they can rob and pillage the flock. The real danger is that they've come not to eat the sheep, but to do what? To steal them. 
to steal them and take them captivity. And in actuality, they're false shepherds that come in to do what? To fleece the flock, to rob them of their treasure. And the treasure is the kingdom of heaven and eternal life. In John, the 10th chapter, Jesus says this. You know what he says when he talks about the shepherd, but here's an analogy that is very similar. These wolves really are false shepherds. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the door into the sheepfold, he doesn't go by the door, but climbs up in some other way. He is a what? Doesn't say he's hungry. Doesn't say he's ravenous in that way. He says he is a thief. He is a robber. And all who have come before me, all of those false prophets that have come before me, and the implication is those that come after me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep do not hear them. So what does Jesus mean when he says this? What's he talking about in his day? He's talking about the religious and political leaders entrusted with the care of the people that oppress them and rob them and rob them of their treasure. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herod, he says, beware of the false leaven of them. The scribes and the Pharisees, he calls hypocrites, blind guides who mislead people, not to the kingdom, but they mislead them straight to hell. Scribes who walk around in flowing robes and want all the honor and respect in the best places at the banquets in the synagogues. Men of high repute. And yet on a day-to-day basis, they go out and they rob widows' houses. You see, they're thieves. You see, they're bad, bad trees that produce bad fruit. And he shifts to another analogy here. What this is not about. What is the bad tree and the good tree not about? It's not about non-productive trees. Okay? This isn't about trees that don't produce. He talks about that elsewhere in John the 15th chapter. He talks about the vine that does not produce If you're branches and you don't produce, it's cut off and thrown into the fire. Non-productive. The withered fig tree, when he goes to it to eat and it has false, it has flowers but no fruit. It's non-productive. The barren fig tree, the the parable of the barren fig tree, Jesus says it needs to be given another chance. But those are non-productive. What he's talking about here is trees that are not good. They produce bad fruit. You know, some argue, well, Jesus is wrong here. <laughs> uh, good trees can produce bad fruit. And they try to undermine his saying here, but in fact, they are wrong. No, when a tree produces fruit that is bad, it, it, when, a, when a tree produces fruit and it happens to be bad, it isn't that it has produced bad fruit. It has produced bad fruit that becomes bad. You see, it has become bad because of weather, circumstances, insects, or blight. They have bad fruit, but they didn't produce bad fruit. What Jesus is talking about here are trees that inherently, by their very nature, produce fruit that is unfit for human consumption. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Inherently incapable of producing fruit that is fit for consumption. And he gives the example, you don't pick grapes from what? thorn bushes. You don't pick figs from thistles. Look at the language. He says every good tree. And when he talks about good there, he doesn't use the word that means pleasing and appears to be. He uses the word agathos, which means inherently by its very nature is good. And then it produces fruit that is pleasing and attractive, can be consumed. When he talks about the bad tree, he's talking about something that is inherent to the nature of the tree. He doesn't use the normal word for bad here. Something that looks bad. 
Something that is bad. He uses a word that means it is a corrupt tree. It is rotten. It is worthless. It doesn't just produce unattractive fruit. It produces, and the word here is evil fruit, diseased fruit, wicked and harmful fruit. You see, we judge trees that way. We judge them by their inherent nature and what we know they produce, not simply because the fruit is blighted. And we know it's harmful. You don't go up to a yew tree that has cherry-like fruit and pick it and eat it. If you do, you will consume toxic levels of taxing. You don't go to a horse chestnut tree and you have that fruit that looks very attractive, shiny and brown, and open it up and eat it because you know it's got tannic acid that can cause nausea. You don't go to a holly bush and take the mildly toxic berries because you know it will produce low blood pressure and nausea. You don't consume the attractive fruit of lily of the valley. If you do, very possibly you will die. If you ever watch Breaking Bad, that's what Heisenberg uses to make his poisonous mixture. Even elderberry. Elderberry is poisonous unless it has been cooked thoroughly and processed properly. You see, you go to these bushes or these trees and you know because you have been taught and from experience, you don't taste them and test them because they're poisonous. They produce fruit that is not fit for consumption. So how can we judge the bad fruit? Beware of appearances. They can be deceiving. False prophets are always certain things. They're always attractive like Satan. Ezekiel, when he is condemning the king of Tyre, uses an analogy which is obviously based on Satan, which he says, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You see, sometimes the false prophets are attracted. Sometimes they're very enlightening. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, angel of light. And yet at the same time, he blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. Sometimes these false prophets appear to be pious and holy. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. He said, so you too outwardly, you appear to be righteous men. You look like you're holy men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Sometimes these prophets perform amazing feats, even miracles. Jesus warned in Matthew, the 24th chapter. You see, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and they will show you great signs. They will perform many miracles and wonders so as to lead the elect, if possible, to mislead them. You see, false prophets are often attractive. They're enlightening. They look to be pious and holy. They do amazing things, and they're very popular. The broad way. Jesus observed, Woe to you if people speak well of you. Woe to you if you are popular, because you see, that is what your father, their fathers did to the prophets. You see, false prophets are usually popular. Peter warned in his letter, many will follow them. Large numbers will follow them. So what are the tests, the clear tests for a false prophet? Three things, I think. Content, lifestyle, and effects. What is the content of their message? Friends, words matter. Jesus says this in Matthew, the 12th chapter, a tree is either good or bad. He uses that analogy again. And then he says, how can you, speaking to the Pharisees, being evil, speak good? For when you speak, what comes out comes out of the treasure of your heart. And then he makes this statement. 
He says, you see, for by your words you will be judged. By your words you will either be justified or you will be condemned. Words matter. Listen to the message. The bottom line is we must examine the message of every prophet, every preacher, every teacher. Is the message Christ-centered or is it self-centered? Is the gospel of salvation by grace taught or do they preach legalism? Is their message biblically based on the law and the prophets that Jesus came to fulfill and on the apostles? The Bereans did this with Paul. He, he, he spoke the gospel. He spoke the gospel of the new covenant and they checked it against the word to see whether these things were so. We must test the message. A second test is their lifestyle and behavior. Some would say, well, no, only the message is a test. Because you can't judge behavior. You know, people can fake behavior. They, they, can, they can act good. Well, folks, I would suggest to you that it's a whole lot easier to speak the message than to live it. There are a lot of people that very easily speak the message, but they don't live it. It's not always easy to what? Walk the talk. No, we need to watch because even though they may behave in a pious manner, if you watch carefully and consistently, eventually their behavior will reveal their inconsistencies. And certainly bad behavior is evidence that a person is a false prophet. What are the tests of behavior? Well, Jesus has already given them in the Beatitudes. When you look at a prophet, is that prophet poor in spirit? Does that prophet mourn with his people? Is that prophet meek? Does he hunger for righteousness' sake? Is she merciful? Is she pure in heart? Does she make peace? Is she persecuted for righteousness or is she popular? He or she, do they live out the Beatitudes? Does that person seek to become perfect like his or her heavenly father? Doesn't mean to be without fault. It means to become what God created him or her to be. Do they follow the golden rule that summarizes the law and the prophets? We need to look at the behavior and the lifestyle as well as the message. And then we need to look at the effects of the ministry. Is there focus on the kingdom of God and his righteousness? What is their focus? What is their influence? Are they salt? Are they salt substitute? Are they light? Are they false light? What's the product? Do they bear good fruit? And what is that? John 15, do they glorify the Father by bearing much fruit? And what is that? Do they make disciples? What is the result? Does the kingdom of God grow in a right way? Or are their own purposes promoted for their own cause to grow? Apostolic testimony is manifold in the New Testament later. These false prophets are described as fierce wolves that do not spare the flock but steal sheep. They introduce destructive heresies and pervert the gospel of God's grace. They cause divisions in the church, envy and strife and disputes and controversial questions. They speak what the people want to hear. They scratch itching ears. They take people, and we've looked at this in Colossians, and we will be over the next few months. They take people captive through vain human philosophies, human fables, and wives' tales. They preach a form of godliness, but they don't live it out. In fact, they deny God's power. The apostles continue to tell us that they promote sensuality and greed and exploitation through false words. And ultimately, what do they do? They steal the people. 
They steal the sheep and they enslave them to a gospel of legalism that robs them of Christ's freedom. And it's pervasive. It's pervasive in the New Testament. Look at Simon Magus, who wanted to buy the Holy Spirit in Samaria. Look at Elymas, bar Jesus, who in Cyprus tried to turn Sergius Paulus away from Paul. The seven sons of Sceva in Ephesus, who could not exorcise the demon because they did not know the Lord. Those in Colossae, about which we will be studying, who worshipped angels and followed Jewish legalism. In Ephesus and Pergamum, we find in Revelation, the Nicolaitans, who promoted immorality and idolatry. And in the early church, this continued and continued again. Those who denied the deity of Christ, the Ebionites. Those who rejected the Jehovah of the Old Testament, the Gnostics. Those who rejected the deity of Christ like the Paulicians and the humanity of Christ like the Sabalians. Those who rejected the eternal nature of the Son and said He was a creature made by God the Father, the Arians. The Nestorians who said Christ was really two people in one, God and man. Two complete people that were almost schizophrenic those who said Christ only had one divine, one nature, and it was divine, the Monophysites. Those like Pelagius who said that you could be saved by good works apart from God's grace. You see throughout history, and it continues and it continues, there have been false prophets and cults, and they exist today. So let me close with some observations. There are some repeated marks of these false religions and cults. One, they are almost always a personality cult that focuses on the false prophet. And that prophet usually does three things. Promises provision and prosperity for the people, even salvation for those who follow. And they speak peace and safety. Come to me and we will form a self-contained peaceful community, a closed community where there's peace and safety. And they thirdly claim to be God's leader with absolute authority and power. Now, folks, what's interesting about this is those are the very three things that Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. Think about it. The great miracle worker that can provide bread from stones to provide for the people. The special messenger from God that God's going to keep safe. You can jump from the temple and he won't let you be harmed because he needs you as his messenger. The human ruler over worldly kingdoms as he stood upon the mountain and, and Satan said, bow down and worship me and I'll give it all to you. See, what he was tempting Christ to do was to become a false prophet. They always have a new prophecy that goes beyond the Bible with books, with, with information that is not found within its 66 books. And they teach doctrinal heresy, which usually focuses on the Godhead, some aberration of that, questions a trinity or the deity or humanity of Christ. They give unbiblical views about salvation that promote either legalism on the one hand or universalism on the other hand, or you're a special group called by God and only you are going to be saved. They distort the view of the end times and usually try to form a millennial kingdom, whether it is Mount Carmel or the People's Church in Guyana. So what do we do? Why is this important? What, friends, is Jesus telling us today is at stake? One eternal destiny. Jesus condemns the Pharisees because he says, you know what you're doing? You're leading people straight to hell. When we preach, when we prophesy, when we teach, 
God has entrusted to us the responsibility to lead people along the narrow way of salvation. And when we preach and teach the popular way, the broad way, a person leads them to eternal destruction. That's at stake. We're talking about eternal destiny. What's at stake? Christ's reputation is at stake. We as a church must protect and communicate his message clearly and clearly, clearly dissociate Christ from any hint of untruth, impropriety, or immorality. What's at stake? The protection of the flock. Teachers and preachers, leaders of the people are not hirelings. They should be good shepherds. They're not hired hands, but they must be like the good shepherd who does not enter the wrong way. They must not be the wolf that comes in their midst and robs them. We must protect the flock. We must be discerning when we do this. When we look at the fruit of what people are doing and, and saying, we need to be reminded of this. Not everybody that's different from us is a false prophet. The tent is broader than we think. Those who are not against us, Jesus said, is what? Are what? They are for us. So just because people are preaching and teaching something out there that isn't identical with the way we preach it, if they preach Christ crucified and the gospel of salvation by grace in the eternal kingdom of God, they may sound different than us, but they are not necessarily false prophets. Two last things. Don't waste time fighting the counterfeits. We need to identify false prophets, friends. We need to identify them. We need to clarify to the world who they are. And we need to warn believers to stay away from them. But we need to stay focused. Stay focused on preaching and proclaiming the truth and not defeating the false prophets. Leave that to God. And finally, we need to hold fast to that which counts. It's not enough to identify false prophets and heresy. Paul tells us in Romans, when, when, when you encounter it, you must turn away from it. It's not enough to identify it. It's not enough to reject false prophets and heresies. Ephesus learned that lesson. John says on behalf of Jesus to the church at Ephesus, it's good. You've identified false prophets. You've persevered in this. And you have ad adhered to doctrinal purity. You've conformed to it. But doctrinal purity is not enough. For you have done what? You have lost your first love. It's not enough to identify false prophets. It's not enough to reject them. And it's not even enough to know the truth. Friends, this is not just about doctrinal purity. It's not just about identifying heresy. And John, in his first letter, reminds us of this. He's talking to people who knew the truth. They knew what was right. They knew what the message should be. But he reminded them that there's a purpose for having this truth. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just conforming to a doctrinal kind of truth. He says this, as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning, that is the truth. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, so the truth abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. You see, the goal of our teaching and preaching, our prophesying, our telling forth the Word of God is this, not just so that people will know the academic and doctrinal truth, 
but they will know and abide in the author of that truth. Would you pray with me? Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray so that we will know and we will be able to discern what is true, so we will be able to tell which is, what is false. Teach us to pray so that we will live in you and abide in you, in the author of truth. And constantly abiding, this is my plea, grant me thy power, boundless and free, power with men and power with thee. With thee. Lord, teach us to be prayerful people who seek your will, teach your truth, and abide in you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. The invitation this morning is to make a decision for Christ in one way or another. Hopefully not a single one of us leaves without being somewhat changed by hearing about how to pray as a habit six days, no seven days a week. Maybe we've learned something about a testimony about how God calls us, and sometimes we resist, sometimes we hold back, and the clouds he doesn't send to shade our way, and he says, persevere, be faithful, respond to the call, do what I have called you to do. Is God calling you to make some kind of decision like that today? And it may be, especially if you're watching online, or maybe even here, you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Perhaps you've listened to all the popular messages of the world, and they offer no solace, no comfort, no permanent treasure. Do not let the evil one steal that treasure from you today, except Christ as Lord and Savior, and His eternal kingdom will be yours.